Welcome to Women on the Verge of a Financial Breakthrough, the podcast where we're going to figure out finance one dumb question at a time. I'm Caitlin Meredith. I'm a mediator and a coach based in the Bay Area. And I'm Sarah Glacus. I'm an investor, advisor, and founder of Black Barn Financial and the Austin Women's Investing Group, which can be found on Meetup. So I first met Sarah when she was my teacher in an investing for beginners class, and she made everyone go around the room the first night to say why they were there, what they were interested in learning about, and everyone else said something like, I'm about to retire, or I got my first job, or I'm interested in the stock market. And when it got to me, I just had to tell the truth which was, this was the only day I could get free babysitting. And Sarah was such a good sport. And then I found, instead of dreading going to class every week, I was looking forward to it. So I made Sarah do this podcast with me so that I can keep doing these weekly classes, because I feel like this is one of these subject areas. I'll be a beginner forever. So welcome. Sarah, are you ready to talk about gold? (laughs) I love to hear you talk about gold. Yes. I don't know. I don't know, honestly. I might be. Hit me. Let's, Let's do it. What if I want my whole pie chart to be one golden medallion? Yes. I've heard that gold is good. And it makes sense. It's shiny. I know what it is. It's been in history forever as a valued thing. So it makes me feel very, you know, secure that when we go to a barter economy with my seashells and my, you know, animal furs, that if I have a huge store of gold, I'll be a survivor. As an investment advisor, are you going to give me a thumbs up on my plan? Yeah, I mean, is your main goal surviving the end of days? I'm not joking. I'm assuming this is like your hypothetical investor who's like, listen, when the shit goes down, I am going to survive. How do I ensure my survival when the end of days comes? Is that generally kind of what we're talking about here? Yes. And that like, oh, during the pandemic, the stock market went up and down. You know, all of these intangibles just freak me out. But gold, it's something I can touch. It's heavy. It feels real. And it feels like a much safer bet, you know, if this is my one financial future to invest in gold. Yeah. I mean, the price of gold also goes up and down by quite a bit. So I don't know if you get that much more stability. But a lot of people understand real assets like gold or real estate more than they understand financial assets like stocks and bonds. So if something is going to change a whole bunch in price, and you feel more comfortable with the gold, then okay, then maybe gold gets a thumbs up on that. If you want resources for a worst case scenario, then gold is actually a pretty good choice. If really bad things happen, financial assets aren't gonna be worth anything because the stock market has probably been you know, blown up or disintegrated or, or whatever. No one's gonna want your pieces of paper. The companies that you own won't have any customers, right? And so those things will be useless. I mean, that's where it's like, okay, people who invest in gold or guns or bunkers or food storage, right? Like if they are preparing for an outcome that they think is likely, The rest of us probably don't think that outcome is as likely. And so we're not preparing for that. If you put all of your money in gold, you are prepared for one very specific outcome, maybe two very specific outcomes, like end of days 
maybe something like hyperinflation, maybe, but you're not prepared for any of the other outcomes. Okay, well, why not? Then I just, instead of downloading from Schwab after I retire to get some money, I just go to the basement and bring up a coin. Yeah, I mean, you, you don't know what that coin's going to be worth when you bring it up, right? I think there is this underlying assumption that the price of gold always goes up. It doesn't. Okay. It goes up and down like other things. There are long periods of time where gold is not, you can't actually pay for things in gold, right? You bring your gold coin up and then you need to turn it into dollars in the world that we live in today, right? right? So if there are these very specific outcomes, these very specific futures where we don't transact in dollars, and we do, in fact, barter, then perhaps your gold will be perfect, right? Because you can barter for food and gasoline and other resources. But if we're still up here above ground using dollars, you have to take your coin and turn it into dollars in order to buy anything from anyone else. So in those outcomes, like you don't, there's no way to tell 30 years from now. I mean, and this is true with, with stocks to some extent, right? Price of gold doesn't grow over long periods of time has not in the past grown as much as financial assets. Okay. So you would end up with less money when you converted your gold back into dollars in the future. So if I have insider knowledge that the universe as we know it will implode within the next, you know, 10 to 20 years, a full gold menu for my financial portfolio, totally in order. However, if for some reason the world does not end in the next 10 to 20 years and instead I just find myself in the same environment and paying my same gas and wanting you know a timeshare in Boca or whatever it's going to be <laughs> I will have lost out on potentially a much larger increase on my investment return on my investments that I made in the stock market instead of in the gold plates underneath my house. Yeah, there's a very, very good chance of that happening. Okay. So I believe you also once said my house would not structurally hold all of the gold that I would need to retire. Yeah, I mean, you were talking about a gold medallion, right? So I kind of assumed that if all of your wealth was in a medallion, that's not that Well, I'm big, thinking right? about pirates, like how they keep gold. <laughs> I don't have any personal experience. Well, I don't know how much gold you're talking about here, right? But if it's a significant amount of gold, you need a place to store it, right? So if you were like, Sarah, I'm going 100% physical gold. My next question, well, after all the questions that I asked before about like, are you preparing for the end of days? Okay. And whatever you're preparing for. But my next question would be like, Caitlin, where are you going to keep the gold? Where do you keep the physical gold? Do you keep it in your house? That seems very risky. Do you keep it in a bank? Well, what happens during the end of days? Banks aren't going to survive either, right? But I think as a physical gold investor, that's a really important question. Where do you keep the gold? It's heavy. People can steal it from you very easily, right? They just barge in and steal all your gold. So this is where I would start getting concerned about like your physical safety, depending on how much gold you had. I'm not talking about like Maybe one bar of gold could be hidden in your house adequately, right? Yeah. And then you move and you've hidden it so well. <laughs> 10 years later. Right. You don't want to lose it. <laughs> There's a lot of issues that pop up with the physical gold play. You just have to think through all of those things. And that's an additional cost of owning gold, right? Like all of the expenses that go into preparing your house to be, I don't know, safe enough to store all of your gold. 
I mean, so that's why most people don't invest in physical gold. It's cumbersome. If you really wanted to be in gold because you thought gold as an asset class was going to do better than stocks or bonds or cash over the long run, you could invest in what sometimes people call paper gold. There are exchange-traded funds that basically allow you to buy little pieces of gold. And the physical gold is maybe stored in a warehouse in New York, like with proper security and proper audits. And you buy a piece of paper that, you know, it's like your claim on a tiny piece of gold in this vault somewhere else. And so if you're just thinking like, oh, gold will do better than stocks, maybe you would just want to buy this paper gold instead of actually going out and buying physical gold. So that's if you want to invest in it as a concept, just like stocks are a concept, rather than having the physical gold. But if you're investing in gold as a concept that you have a share of, it's not a good end of days plan because you won't have access to it. The security guards won't be around and you won't get in with your double, triple authentication anymore. Exactly. Exactly. Okay. I am so interested in this schism that seems so hard for me, and I'm assuming other people to get over, which is the things that we can touch versus the just abstract concepts. I mean, to a certain extent, few of us use cash anymore. So money has become an abstract concept. We have money that is in our banking account and then slowly goes away because it's in our credit card account. <laughs> and we don't touch most of our money anymore. So maybe we're getting more used to it. But I really, owning no gold or any precious metal, I get the appeal or real estate. I want to buy a house. I want to buy a horse. I don't know, something I can touch. And you have to deal with us all the time. I'm so curious if there's a leap that people just make and then they're okay, or if it's a constant negotiation between how people feel secure, invested in things, that's essentially some number system that if you got bonked on your head and woke up on a desert island, would not exist. Whereas if you woke up on a desert island with, you know, a piece of gold or your house or something, it would exist. Right. So, and I have to assume that women are, you know, we are socialized to really gravitate towards the real thing we can touch with our hands. So how do you think through that schism? One of the things I like to talk about with people who have that mindset is if physical assets, real assets, like this idea of touching something. To me, like owning assets in that way is, it's like relatively inefficient. Does that make sense? Say more. Like if we go back to the gold, you think it's as simple as buying a piece of gold that you can touch. But like, how are you going to keep that gold safe? There's this whole other realm of issues that comes up that you have to deal with. Same thing with real estate. You own real estate. There's this whole group of issues you have to put in time and effort to deal with, right? Are you going to choose renters? Are you going to replace the roof? Are you going to call the plumber when the toilet is clogged, right? There's mm -hmm. this extra time and effort that go into real assets uh, for most people. And if you don't want to deal with the time associated with that, you have to hire someone to do it, right? Like someone has to take care of this stuff in the real world. A property management company or a bank to hold your gold or whatever, okay? Right. The expenses of property taxes on your real estate every year, right? Like in Austin, that's like, you know, the huge thing. It's now it's property tax season, right? Everybody's flipping out. With something like financial assets, like stocks and bonds, if you acknowledge that the price of those things is going to change, you can just let it sit there and not put any additional effort 
into managing this or looking at it or doing anything. You can just have an S&P 500 index fund in your Schwab account or whatever, and then just let it do its thing. And you don't have to put any extra effort in. It is truly passive, right? People are always looking for passive income and passive investments. And then they put together this portfolio of real estate where it's like, not passive, aren't you? I mean, you were just on your phone with Airbnb managing your Airbnb in Austin, right? Full-time job. Uh-huh. I mean, it's so cool that it's efficient enough that you can do it from California, but I just saw you put in effort to it, right? You know, and kind of the brain power that goes into it. Right. Whereas with my retirement account, I'll log in a couple times a year or whatever when I'm doing an auto draft, but I don't have to worry that a tree fell on my index fund. Right, right. <laughs> but yet at the same time, we're here you know, doing a podcast about what are index funds, right? Like, what are these things that we're investing in? So you have had to take this leap of faith, basically, to be like, okay, I get the real estate. I get the property. It's straightforward. The goal is straightforward. The stocks, not so much, not so straightforward, right? So I think people avoid them for some period of time because if you don't know about it, right, and it's not intuitive, and we don't learn this in school, you have to get up a learning curve. And a lot of people will wait until they get up the learning curve before they invest in something. And that's just a tricky thing to do. And it seems like some crazy invented system that's just totally imaginary. Yeah, I mean, someone invented capitalism, right? Right, and so that it's like, they're all playing this board game. And why would you wanna put money on this whole fake thing? It's hard to connect the corn that I'm eating for my dinner with something happening in the stock market. I know intellectually there is, but it's so the stock market isn't actually as intangible as we think, but it's invisible in a way that we don't connect with our everyday lives, though they're totally connected. Right. They absolutely are. Every every company that touches that piece of corn from the equipment that the farmer used to plant it to the trucking company that took it to the bread place to the bread company that ground up the corn and made the bread and then it got shipped to the supermarket and then you went to the supermarket and all of those steps are companies, right? And all those companies in America have owners, right? Have shareholders, like they might be private companies or they might be publicly traded companies that you know we can own, but all of those companies exist to fill a role in the economy that we've built here. So if you just think about like, oh, the stock market, yeah, it can seem like very vague or very distant. But if you think about, I mean, if you just went through and, and looked around or tried to keep track of every company you came in contact with every day based on just whatever you're doing in life right now, like whatever you're consuming, I mean, there would be dozens, scores, Hundreds, I don't know, of companies like the end company, like the last company you interacted with before you bought that thing or consumed that thing. But then think about all of the other companies in the supply chain. Right. From creation, ideation to consumption. I mean, it's just a lot of companies. That's what the stock market is. It's those companies that do exist in the world, right? The stocks represent a company that exists and has employees and has products and has services. So if you can tie it back to that, I think it makes it a little bit easier to understand. Yeah, we're in its midst all the time. So even if we're not actively investing, we are, we're participating. Absolutely. Okay, let's talk about a step, a woman on the verge 
today can take to take care of her financial future, move it forward, and thinking about the just the baseline things. And the one I thought of was the first time I came to your office. I had no idea what I could talk to you about. So I just did a printout of everything, of all my student loans and my mortgage and my bank accounts and anything I could think of that sort of told my financial story and printed them all out and put them on your desk and said, here, this is, <laughs> this is <laughs> this my is financial me. story. Yes, here's, here's my life with the dollar sign. What next? And you were able to convert that information to a picture of what my pie chart looked like in terms of diversified portfolio, in terms of balance between debt and income, etc. So I was thinking as a step a woman on the verge today could take would just to know what is the snapshot of her financial life. What are the different categories you can think of? Maybe the printouts I did were perfect, but just off the top of your head, what's that list of you should know this number, this number, and maybe you won't do anything with those numbers today. You'll just know where they are and when you're feeling a degree more brave, you dig into what they actually mean. Yes. So for our meetings, the meeting that we had, the two main categories to get a handle on are your assets, the value of your assets, and the balance of your debts. So if most of your financial picture fits into those two categories. The other two categories that are also important are your income. So that's usually like your W-2, right? Or your tax return from last year, or a pay stub. And your expenses, which if you have a budget, you would know how much you spend each month. If you don't have any idea how much you spend, maybe we'll put a pin in that and uh, come back to it another day because it's a Good big idea topic on for its own. another first step. Okay. But the assets and debts section, you can do so much with that information. And I am always surprised that people just don't ever add up those two categories, like until they're about to come in my office, right? And then we'll add everything up and they're like, oh, I didn't know I had so many assets. And then they feel really good about it, right? Like they just have never taken the time to just add up all of the assets. So the easiest way to do this is to just print out like a summary page of all of your accounts, right? So checking accounts, savings accounts, retirement accounts, any account that's at a financial institution that has a positive dollar value on it. Just print those babies out, line them up, put them in a pile, and then go through and add up the value of all the balances. Like take all the balances, add them up. Those are your assets. Oh, you'd want to throw your like the fair market value of your house in there. Okay. Right? Your house is an asset. Exclude your cars. No one cares. Exclude like your <laughs> furnishings. Not that. But your house and if you have other properties, then your other properties and all of your financial accounts. Add all that up. Okay. I want to think about the woman who does this who hasn't been doing it for a specific reason which is the debts are going to be more than the assets. Yes. And for me, I'm thinking it's just having the number helps, even if it's the scariest thing. And we'll talk in later episodes about what first steps can be from there. But just you can't even start on a plan without knowing what you're dealing with. I think so, too. I mean, I think that the numbers are what they are. I don't see how they're any less bad if you don't know what they are, right? Like if they're bad, 
they're going to be bad whether you know what the number is or you don't know what the number is. And you are not doing yourself any favors by not knowing what the number is. Yeah. Yeah. But I can see how it's scary. But if you just, again, go through all your student loans, all your credit cards, and I'm not talking about like the next step of like nitpicking through all of them to find all this other information. Add up all the balances, come up with a number, that's the debts that you owe. And then how you look at a balance sheet is you look at the value of all of your assets. And then you look at the value of all of your debts, you subtract your debts from your assets, and that's called your net worth. It is really common, especially early in life, or if you've gone through something traumatic or something just a really hard time, it's common to have a negative net worth. That is not the end of the world. Student loans alone, I can really see that. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, you might have a negative net worth for a long time. The idea is when you start putting this plan in motion, your plan is to get less negative and then to get to break even and then to get to a positive net worth, right? And you can work on both sides of the equation. Like I think we'll probably talk about this in future podcasts, but I'm not talking about like getting rid of all of your debt first before you start working on the asset side. You know, hopefully over time your assets are getting bigger because you're becoming a more savvy investor and your debts are going down because you're paying those off over time and the math is getting better and you're getting closer and closer to break even and then closer and closer to a positive net worth. So those are the directions you want to be going. And you can't start before you know. Right. You just can't. You know, for any of us who've been in a desperate situation, did we dig ourselves out of that desperate situation by not knowing what we were doing or what we were up against or what we were trying to dig out of? Like, no, you can't even start that process until you know what you're dealing with, right? You're not just going to magically wake up one morning and be like, oh, I made all of the changes that I needed to in order to get myself out of debt. It's a mindful course of action that you have to put in place. And there are lots of other people around you who are doing it too, right? So you can like form your little gang of debt busters who are working on that at the same time, hopefully, that you're building the asset side of your balance sheet too. I was going to say just even telling a friend without even going into specifics, hey, I'm about to do this really scary thing. I'm going to look at my numbers and just know them for the first time. And I just wanted to let someone know that I'm doing that right now. And just to give yourself permission to get a little extra support, too, and not to just have the shame, but take advantage of a close connection you have that would make you feel better just when you're doing it. Someone knows what's going on with you. How many people do you think you know who have done that, who have like dug themselves out of a pretty serious hole? I'm not sure, because I think often it's something we don't talk about. There's so much shame about that, that... You know, someone will mention offhand, sometimes my clients, how much they owe on their credit card. And I have to kind of hold back a gasp. That's not helpful. And think about, okay, wow, A, you went through something really big to need, you know, money that you didn't have. And B, you're looking up something really big here. But I feel like I don't, you don't always hear about it because there's a lot of shame about it. Yeah, there really is. I mean, because I think I know a good number of people who've shared that in the Austin Women's Investing Group. Like, you know, we'll have people who said like, oh, hey, I just paid off all of my credit cards or I just paid off the last piece of my student loans or I'm on track to pay them off over this period of time, right, where they've really done the work. I feel like the pride that I hear in those women's voices just being like, hey, like I am doing this or I did do this yeah. is really remarkable. 
and touching. I mean, there are a gazillion reasons that people end up in a lot of debt, right? And it doesn't mean you're a bad person. It doesn't mean that you did something wrong. And it doesn't mean that it's not something you can't get out of, right? But the first step in like figuring and sorting all of this out is knowing what that balance is, right? Like, okay, what are we trying to do here, people? This is your number. And then they're just your numbers, right? And right. luckily with investing, your numbers are all temporary. Anyway, your assets are going to go up and down, hopefully up over time. And next time, stay tuned because we're going to talk about if you need a financial advisor, how to choose a financial advisor, and how to make sure a financial advisor doesn't steal from you. It should be fun. (laughs) You're a financial advisor. I am. (laughs) (laughs) Bye, guys. Hey. Do you have any dumb questions about finance or investing? Send them to us at our website, womenontheverge.com. Hey, so many thank yous to Kelly West, a woman on the verge in her own right, who took the amazing photos for our album art and website, helped with our website design, music, audio editing, cheerleading, mental health, everything. Emily Kleinsorgi, our stylist that did our hair and makeup for our photos from Lucy Skyrocket. Lauren Gross and Taylor Gross, who helped us with our graphic design. And our music is by Bad Bad Hats and Devmo. This episode was edited by Jess Rowe. If your partner is making you ask for money, giving you an allowance, taking your money, or not letting you know about or have access to family income, this could be economic abuse. Learn more at thehotline.org or call 1-800-799-SAFE. So Sarah, because you're a financial professional, we have to read a disclaimer for this podcast. I would actually really love it if you could read the disclaimer in your best legal voice. Okay, doing it. This podcast contains general information that is not suitable for everyone. The information contained herein should not be construed as personalized investment advice. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. There is no guarantee that the views and opinions expressed in this podcast will come to pass. Investing in the stock market involves gains and losses and may not be suitable for all investors. Information presented herein is subject to change without notice and should not be considered as a solicitation to buy or sell any security. I know the first thing you notice is that I'm covered in gold. The trip of the wrist, it can turn a hot bitch cold. To get what you want in life, girl, you gotta be bold. No, I'm a direct.